0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You're about to meet and get to know yet another highly accomplished creative woman. Leah Warshawski is an award-winning director and producer, specializing in documentary-style features, TV shows, and commercials, Finding Hillywood, her very first feature, profiles the beginning of Rwanda's film industry. It took seven years to make and premiered at the Seattle Film Festival in 2013, and since then has screened at more than 65 film festivals worldwide. It also won six awards. Leah co-founded Rwandafilm.org, a LinkedIn for Rwandan filmmakers, and a tool to help grow the film business in East Africa. Leah also happens to be co-director, along with her husband, Todd Soliday, of another award-winning documentary, Big Sonia. This project is a very personal one. Sonia, a Holocaust survivor, inspirational public speaker, owner of a successful tailoring shop in Kansas City, Kansas, a neighborhood icon, also happens to be Leah's grandmother. Big Sonia was a six-year project. Leah is also the co-executive producer of Personhood, a feature documentary about the personhood movement in this country. By the way, Leah has a B.A. in Japanese language from the University of Hawaii. She worked in the Aloha State in the Marine Department for major features and TV shows, including Lost and Hawaii. Let's meet and get to know Leah. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, I got to start here. Japanese, University of Hawaii, what's that about? <laughs> who, who wouldn't do that, right? <laughs> yeah, really. I guess we're all nuts. No, seriously, talk about that. I didn't know when I was younger what I wanted
1: to do exactly. And so when I went to college, uh, I started off studying art because I'd always been interested in art and quickly decided that that's not something uh, I could probably make a living out of doing, <laughs> at least at that time, and so I switched majors uh, one year in to study Japanese language because I really sort of fell in love with Japanese art, and at the time thought, you know, if I can learn Japanese and use Japanese in multiple business industries, then I would at least have work out of school. And so uh, when I knew that I wanted to study Japanese, I started looking at schools that were good for that. And it it was really an easy choice because at the time it was either University of Hawaii, uh, University of Michigan, or Rochester University.
0: <laughs> oh, God, so, what a no-brainer, <laughs> but, right?
1: Yeah, no-brainer.
0: But where did you grow
1: up? I grew up all over the place. I was born on the West Coast, but then I went to high school in St. Louis, then ended up going to college in Boston, uh, took a year off, uh, lived in Michigan, then went to Hawaii, lived in Japan for a little bit, I'm sort of a mutt, I guess. <laughs> people always ask me where I'm from, and I have a hard time answering that. Yeah,
0: it would probably take 20 minutes to answer, but yeah, is, exactly. that, is it a wanderlust thing in you? It is. I've always uh, been interested in travel and adventure
1: and meeting new people, seeing new places. I like tropical places. I have a love for the ocean and diving uh, anywhere warm
0: with water. I'm there. When you graduated from the University of Hawaii, you stayed for a while because, as I mentioned in the intro, and you're going to have to explain this, I don't know what it exactly means to work in the marine departments of major features and TV shows. I didn't even know there was such a thing.
1: I know most people haven't heard of it, but there's any time you have a show where you see scenes that happen on the water or in some cases near the water or underwater, uh, there's a department for that, and it's called the Marine Department. So I sort of got into the film industry kind of by accident, I guess. I was working on a boat in college and just as a, as a part-time job and ended up meeting a Marine coordinator uh, who at the time was working on pretty big projects like Baywatch and Lost and Hawaii. And he was looking for an assistant who knew a little bit about water. Uh And so um, at that time, (laughs) I I didn't know anything about the film industry, but I knew enough um, from working on a boat during college to get the job. So I started working for him on some of these bigger projects. And um, we sort of joke because my first job in the film industry was on a Baywatch movie. And so (laughs) it was kind of trial by
0: fire at Uh that point. So that's what kind of started you on the road into the film and television business, huh?
1: Yeah, it really did. And I feel really fortunate to have so many good mentors and teachers and people who taught me what to do and took me under their wing because at that time I had no clue what I was doing. I just wanted to work really hard and learn as much as I could. And I loved being outside and I loved the camaraderie and the teamwork and just the cast of characters. You know, it's really like The film industry is really like a traveling circus, and since I've always sort of been my own traveling circus, I guess
0: it's a a good fit. But, you know, I have interviewed quite a few female directors, which in and of itself is very exhilarating. But I'm just struck by, yes, you can learn the business And absorb all of these things. I just am trying to wrap my head around to actually go out there and call, no pun intended, all the shots, (laughs) if you know what I mean.
1: (laughs) It's taken a really long time. I'm still learning every single day. And when I started working on films and knew that that was something I wanted to do for a long time, I decided that if I was gonna be a decent producer, then. I should probably learn as much as I could about as many different jobs and departments because how can I ask somebody else to do something if I don't know what I'm asking for? So I I worked in the Marine Department. I worked in the Location Department and I worked in the Art Department. I think I did props at one time. Uh, I did production managing, field coordinating, assistant coordinating.
0: (laughs) All right. So you paid Uh, your dues, in other words.
1: Yeah. If that was my education and I feel like I'm still being educated all the time, but I'm, I just feel really fortunate to have been able to do that and work my way up and work on some really random and strange, you know, sort of projects and have found myself in places I would have never imagined doing things I would have never thought possible. And, um, that industry allows us to do that. And I I just am sort of addicted, I guess, to that lifestyle.
0: What I have also garnered is that the women I have interviewed, and we are coning in on 275, all have a very strong belief in themselves. It may not have started that way, but to think that I can do this and I'm going to do this. And it's not that this was by any way handed to you all on a silver platter. No, (laughs) I don't think it's handed to anybody on a silver platter. But
1: I'm confident that I've paid enough dues along the way. And I feel like I've worked really hard and I continue to work really hard. And a mentor of mine gave me a piece of really good advice that I think about often. And that's the best captain is the best crew, meaning Mm -hmm. you have no right to tell other people what to do unless you're willing to get down in the trenches and do it yourself. And that's sort of a motto that I try to live by. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I'm, you know, I'm a great production assistant. I'm like the best production assistant you could ever have, (laughs) because I I appreciate it. And I I love working for other people and with other people. And I don't by any means feel the need to always be in charge and always call the shots. I just enjoy being in the industry and working with the people I get to work with.
0: So let's talk about Finding Hillywood. How was that born? Well,
1: Finding Hillywood was born out of a trip uh, to Rwanda in about, I think it was 2006 or 2007. A good friend of mine and I were working on a corporate video and met some local filmmakers there and sort of asked them how they sustain, you know, their lives in the film industry there, and they told us about this film festival that they're a part of called the Hillywood Film Festival uh, that involves a giant inflatable movie screen uh, traveling around the countryside to show films from local filmmakers in their own language. And uh, the idea of that festival stuck with us. And we ended up going back to see, you know, to just scout it, I guess, and see if the festival was a reality. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Ended up making a, a feature over six years about this festival and following some of the filmmakers who have become more like family for us. What's the
0: genesis of the word hilly?
1: Yeah, so Rwanda is the land of a thousand hills. Aha. Uh-huh. And when you go, um, there's no flat place in Rwanda. <laughs> I didn't realize before I went there that it was so mountainous and there's volcanoes and it's lush and one of the most beautiful places I've ever into. It's a gorgeous country and it's perfect for filming because the light there is always just right. You know, it was like paradise for filmmakers. <laughs> we, I bet We had a lot of footage that didn't make it into that film, but, um, yeah, it was, it's interesting looking back on it because it was definitely, I was living in Seattle at the time. And so traveling back and forth to Rwanda, raising money for that kind of effort, making a feature in one of the furthest reaches of the world. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure what gave me the confidence to do that and know that it would get done. (laughs) (laughs) It was, um, I definitely dove head first into that one and, um, really proud of the accomplishment, but looking back, it was one of the, um, crazier things that I've undertaken.
0: Was it tough to raise money? Always. Yes. You know, were they thinking in their heads, oxymoronic, a film industry in Rwanda? Of course.
1: Yeah. It, once once we showed, you know, we had a number of trailers. We would show trailers to raise money and we would, you know, the image of thousands of people uh, watching a film on a giant inflatable screen in the middle of the jungle.
0: You know, um, people
1: who've never <laughs> seen a movie before. You know, it's, it's stunning. Um, we would show those images to people and the The footage definitely helped us fundraise, but still, we had a rough time. I mean, Rwanda's far away. <laughs> it's uh, it's tough to raise money for anything far away when you live in the U.S. You know, and you haven't traveled that much. Everything seems far away. Seems like it doesn't matter here. So, it was tough.
0: And is the RwandaFilm dot org organization still very much alive and well? It's very much alive and well,
1: and we are in the process of turning it over to a local Rwandan organization to run it. We've been piloting that this year.
0: That's very cool. So we have Finding Hillywood, and then we move on to Big Sonia. So I'd like you to talk about the genesis of this movie— was this something that had always been in your brain, in your heart? No. <laughs> okay. Because it's a far it's, cry from this, this first documentary. It is and it isn't. It, it has some similar themes.
1: <laughs> okay. There's there's similar themes in, you know, healing, reconciliation, um, the power of art, the power of cinema, Uh trauma and healing from the trauma and figuring out how to get through your own challenges. Those are themes in, in both of these films. But I didn't realize when I was making Finding Hillywood that I was doing it for such personal reasons. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I just kind of plowed through it and never thought about that until the end of the process. Uh, there's a reason I was so interested in learning about how to heal post-genocide. And it's because of my own family history. And that's not something that I was thinking about when we were making our first film. So can you share that with us? Well, Big Sonia is, obviously, it's about my family. It's about more than my family, but the star of the film, if you will, is my grandmother, Sonia. And we follow her, well, since we started when she was 85 years old and she's 92 now. So we uh, we follow her through working at the shop that she's been working at for more than 35 years, John's Tailoring. Uh, We follow her to speaking engagements where she speaks with teenagers and inmates, prisoners about her experience during the war. And then we follow some people who she's impacted and have changed their lives because of her story. Because a lot of my family members died in the Holocaust, I have a particular interest in how people heal post-trauma, post-genocide, and that was also a theme in Finding Hollywood and in Big Sonia. One of the bigger themes that's come out in our movie is a theme of intergenerational trauma and how that trauma gets passed down from generation to generation, whether it's you know families who survived the Holocaust or not. Uh, It's become one of the most talked about and relatable and universal themes
0: in the movie. Talk about your personal experience with this growing up. Was this talked about at home? Was it buried? I just think it's too painful to talk about and too
1: painful to think about. And that's not in every family because I recently met somebody who said that her parents were survivors and that they chose the opposite route in that they decided to tell their kids when the kids were, I think, six years old, all of the gory details. Wow, wow! <laughs> and so that's another um, that's another way to do it, but that's not how we did it in our family. You know, growing up, obviously, I knew that uh, we had members of our family that didn't survive. I knew that Sonia you know, was a survivor. Obviously, John, her husband survived as well. Other members of my family did survive, but a lot of them died. And it was just, I guess, kind of like a rain cloud sometimes. So we knew it was there, but talking about it really brought up just too many painful memories for, you know, for my dad. And so... I never wanted to upset my parents like that. I didn't, you know, enjoy seeing my parents get upset or seeing them cry, and so I avoided talking about it as well. But there were hints of things all along the way, and I certainly knew this history was in my family. I just didn't really explore it or have to confront it as much until we started making the
0: film. What was it that drove you to do this? Well,
1: after finding Hillywood Uh, My husband and I decided that project took a really long time. We wanted to make a film, but we didn't want to necessarily take another six, seven years to make a feature. And so we, (laughs) we thought we would make a short film about John's tailoring. And we always knew in the family that the tailor shop would be a great location for a reality show because there's so many things that happen in the shop every day that are unexpected and hilarious and heartbreaking all at the same time. And really the the turnkey was when my husband, Todd came to visit the shop with me and we started talking about, well, you know, how are we going to do this? What's the right way to do this? And he kind of confirmed for me that yes, this will be an interesting short film that has nothing to do with the family, it has a broader appeal. Because Todd didn't, obviously, he didn't grow up in my family. He's not Jewish. Um, We wanted to make sure that we were making a film that that would have a broad appeal. And so he validated that for me. And we decided that we would make a short film just about John's tailoring.
0: And your grandmother's personality that, you know, she dispensed information and advice, and she kind of held court in the tailor shop. She was a real character.
1: Yes, she's a character, and the shop is a character, and the mall that the shop was in is a character, and then all of the characters who come into the shop. Uh, And so we felt like, you know, those elements alone are enough for a short about the shop. And we also, thinking about distribution and how, you know, next steps we wanted to take in our careers, I think at the time we thought that we would like to try making a short so that we could get it qualified and potentially have a chance at an Academy Award. It's a very different trajectory (laughs) when you have a short versus a feature. And we hadn't qualified anything before. And we were thinking that if we could make a really strong short, we might have an easier time doing that than with a feature, different competition.
0: So when in the course of filming and working on this, did it dawn on you that there was no way that this could be a short film.
1: Well, there were a couple things that happened along the way. We began interviewing members of my family and uh, stories came out that we weren't expecting and it was obvious to us that they were dealing with a lot of trauma and anxiety that had been passed down from Sonia. And at the same time, that we were hearing their stories and seeing how painful it was for them. Sonia got an unexpected eviction notice from the shop. Yeah, the mall that she was in had been for sale for a very long time, and nobody thought anything would ever happen to it. it had been As long as I can remember, the mall was for sale. We didn't expect her to get evicted during the middle of our filming. <laughs> so... <laughs> Also gave us a great story arc because we knew that
0: she would survive. We didn't know how. But this was her life. It was her life. I mean, going into the shop was her life. How long had she run the shop since her husband died?
1: You know, I can't remember which year John died. I was, I think, 12 or 13 when he died. The shop has been around for more than 35 years. Did they both do tailoring? Yes. John was actually a tailor. Sonia never wanted to work in that shop. She went in to help John out. Uh, he had Parkinson's, and she was forced to go into the shop and help out. And it is ironic that the shop has become her entire life and her livelihood because she never wanted to be a part of it.
0: Wow. So she, she ran the show then? She runs the show,
1: always. She wears the pants and she runs the show, but she does have a lot of help.
0: So it dawns on you that you've got something bigger here. Was she agreeable and amenable to this? Yes. She loves being in front
1: of the camera. She loves having her picture taken. She is a total diva. She's always wanted to be a movie star. And so for us, We're grateful that she let us keep filming and that she gave us access because there were some days that were pretty ugly. She went through a really difficult time after the eviction notice. And we kept filming and we kept most of that out of our film because in the end, it didn't make sense to keep it in. But she went through a lot of back and forth about what she was going to do. Because this was her raison d'etre. Yes. And she, you know, she started blaming a lot of other people. She wasn't confident in herself. She was having a hard time sleeping. She had a lot of anxiety and things got kind of tricky there for a while. And we kept filming and she allowed us to film. And sometimes, you know, we'd have to ask her to do things a number of different times if it didn't go right the first time or something happened with the camera. And she was, for the most part, she was very, very patient with us Uh and so we couldn't have asked for a better subject. Of course, she thought for six years that we were just making a film about her life, even though we told her a number of times there are other elements to this film, not just you.
0: <laughs>
1: so to her surprise, when she saw the, the film for the first time, you know, she told us that was when she finally got it. She finally understood that the film is bigger than her and that it's bigger than our family, and that it's going to impact so many more people. But during production, she had blinders on, I think.
0: I interviewed Fern Perlstein, who made the documentary The Last Laugh about humor yeah, in the Holocaust. Great. Yes, it's a <laughs> wonderful film. And she was interviewed twice. And the second time she came with Judy Gold, who is one of the comedians in the film. And what they both said was, well, Judy was incredibly impassioned about the fact that, are we teaching this in schools? Is there going to be a yes. whole generation that knows nothing about what right. happened? That must have been another one of your goals.
1: Yes, from day one. I mean, that that's it's been our goal since day one. And we're really excited that we actually have an educational version of the film. It's 45 minutes. And we have educational materials that we've been Collaborating on um, with the Greenspan Center for Social Justice, and so we have different curriculum guides for teenagers in seventh grade. We have a college guide. We have uh, we may even have a senior guide discussion guide um, for senior living facilities or um, people that want to have discussions after the film. And we have a high school version. So wow, <laughs> we have extra content that's on the DVD. I mean. We knew that we wanted to reach a younger audience and a broad audience from day one of making this film, whether it was a short or a feature that educational curriculum and components have been in our sites for a very long time. So we are pushing that pretty hard at the moment, especially as we're doing our theatrical release. If there are teachers or educators out there who want this for their classrooms, please license a copy for your classroom. Uh, because that's that's what we really want to do with this movie, because, as you know, within our lifetime, all the survivors are going to be gone. Yeah. And mm-hmm. how do we teach lessons from the Holocaust? You know, how does it apply to modern day and how do we teach that to kids growing up so they they won't forget? And so it never happens again.
0: So what does this film mean to you and your husband? That's a big question.
1: Um, gosh. I don't think I've ever been asked that before, at least in that way. It means so many things to us. We've been screening the film for a year. We premiered this movie a day after the election. And the timing couldn't be more perfect, I think, for this film to be out in the world. And so for us, it's become a tool to open up conversations that are really difficult and hard and necessary. And we feel incredibly grateful and blessed, I guess, to have this tool in our toolkit and to be able to screen the film and represent some of the themes in the film and talk about these kinds of issues with people after they see the movie and I feel like the universe has just given us something really special and important in this movie and we could not have done it without the support of my family who's allowed themselves to be very vulnerable on screen which is so difficult And they trusted us to do that. And because they trusted us and the film is what it is, people are inspired. People leave with a little bit of hope after they've seen this film. Um, You know, the film's been called an antidote to hate, which is a huge compliment for us as filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I feel like things have just come together in a perfect way that's allowed us to make the film and then to screen it. And to share it with so many people and watch people's lives change. People change their lives after watching this movie.
0: What a testament, Leah.
1: I don't know. I don't know what a bigger compliment is as filmmakers, you know, to be able to do that.
0: The potency of the power in the positive takes your breath away. And that it must have changed your life. It has. And it's
1: a continuing journey. You know, a lot has happened in the last year and I anticipate a lot happening in the next year that we don't see coming, you know, because we're just starting our theatrical release. It's a different ball game than when we were screening at festivals and it has changed my relationship with my family for the better. Just because we're all talking to each other a little bit more, it hasn't Necessarily healed anything. There are some pretty deep wounds and deep trauma that I'm not sure if there's ever a way to fully heal that. But the film has shown us that we're all dealing with something and that everybody has their own anxieties and their own trauma that's been passed on and that that's okay. Because when it's not talked about, people think that they're going through it by themselves. For sure. And now, at least in my family, there's an understanding that we're not the only ones who are dealing with this.
0: So in a way, you performed a public and private service. Yes. It's fabulous. Yeah. That's fabulous. And I'm
1: not an extrovert. (laughs) So so the personal journey has been really tough. uh, Because I don't necessarily want to talk about these issues all the time. Actually, I don't want to talk about these issues all the time. And because we made a film (laughs) about trauma, well, it's only one of the themes in the film, but it's a strong one. (laughs) Because that's a theme in our film, that's what people want to talk about afterwards. So it's been a really interesting process for me as well.
0: Oh, I bet. We're running out of time, but I don't want to leave without segueing from Big Sonia to personhood. I mean, you're out there again. You know, you're just going to keep on making movies, and and this one is certainly speaks to our time. Yes, this movement of person. If you can briefly describe what the film is yeah, about. Yeah, I
1: mean, I guess I'm in more of a consulting producer, kind of mentor role. Rosalie and Joe, who are directing and producing the film, are really in the trenches of this, and they've been working on the project for the last, gosh, four to six years, I believe. Well, you don't do things in
0: 20 minutes, do you? (laughs) No, none of
1: us do. I mean, it's it's all about funding. So we are going to have a crowdfunding campaign so that they can finish personhood. It's incredibly timely. There are personhood measures people are trying to pass without a lot of knowledge or education about what these actually are before they go up for votes. So it's really about the rights of pregnant women in particular, but it relates to all of us because everyone has a mother or a daughter or a sister. And so it's not just a women's issue. Um, and we're hoping that through the film, we can educate more people about what personhood actually is and some of the laws that we have in our own country that are incredibly stifling for pregnant women.
0: Leah. Wow. Uh... All I want to say, well, there's plenty I want to say, (laughs) but what I'm going to say is just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Who would have thunk when you were studying Japanese at the University of Hawaii? You know, meeting all these wonderful women and getting to know their stories has been, for me, the best in the world. What a labor of love. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time out to have a conversation with me. Well, thank you so much. You have the best job. <laughs> I do. I really do. You do. And, you really do. And the, the women are just extraordinary. And I wish you and your husband continued success and many more movies to make. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.